Mark chapter 2, we're going to talk about Matthew, a.k.a. Levi. <clears throat> Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through uh, 17. Let's read this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him and began to teach them. That's a recurring theme right here at the early parts. Verse 14. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank, thank you for this timely reminder that you are not a God who just says, hey, I'm, I'm calling, I, I don't need to call the righteous, but you're a God who truly sees us all as sinners and you, and you alone is righteous. And Jesus, I thank you for a story like this that reminds us that it is you who calls us and it is you who qualifies us. And it's you who determines who would make a worthy follower. Jesus, forgive us for the people that we hate. And forgive us for hating people. Forgive us for all the times in our lives, Jesus, where we've thought somebody else was disqualified from being used by you. Jesus, I pray that you would use this story to, again, continually show us what it means to be a man of God. I pray that we would see that on full display by the way you take one man out of his career, out of his place of work, and you call him into his place of worth. You call him into his place of his true calling. And Jesus, I pray that today as we lean into that, as we get ready to um, open up your word and walk through this passage that your Holy Spirit would just be with us in this room, that you would work in and through us, that today we would know that um, we met with you because we were in your word and we were connected to your body, these men of God here today. Bless them, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So a decently familiar story we have here, uh, one about uh, the call of, of Levi slash Matthew. Um, it's one that has given us this famous Jesus quote that I've not come to call the or the the favorite favorite quote I think for a lot of people one of the Jesus's uh, highlight real quotes that it's not the uh, the the well who need the people who are well who need the doctor but it's the sick that need the doctor and Jesus then taking it a step further and going I didn't come uh, to save the righteous I came to save sinners which again is all great stuff but in order to give us a little bit of context um, I want to talk about. Uh, what is actually going on here? Remember, they're all right here around the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus is doing a lot of his ministry. This is what, if there was ever a place that you could say, this is Jesus' home, 
Capernaum is that place. Peter's house and this whole little area where James and John, Peter and Andrew, um, where all that is going on, this is the closest thing you have to Jesus' home turf. And what Jesus has been doing in this area previously has been what? What has been the two primary things Jesus has been doing up until this point? Teaching. Pre teaching, preaching, and healing. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what he's been doing. So he uh, has been doing a lot of that, and I don't think it's any coincidence. And we're going to get into this a little bit later. That the way um, Matthew or the way that Mark juxtaposes these two stories, Luke does the same thing in the Gospel account of Luke, but he juxtaposes this this story of Jesus calling Matthew, and then at the end of that story of his call, saying. Who needs to be healed? Is it the people who are well or is it the people who are sick? And then saying, I've come to save righteous, I haven't come to save righteous people, I've come to save sinners. He juxtaposes the story that, that, that says all of those things against the story where he does what? To an actual sick, crippled person. He actually heals a person. So what Jesus is doing here, and this is a, I love how the both gospel narratives do this, they juxtapose Jesus' physical healing with people who are sin sick. And he's saying it's the same thing. I, I, I've come to do both and they're one right over the top of each other and you're getting this multifaceted view of a Jesus who's not just here to heal broken bodies, but he's here to heal broken sinners. And I, I love that in the story. So let's talk about um, tax collectors. I think you guys have, most of you guys in this room, I look around, you've been at church for a decent amount of time. And so you kind of get a little bit of baseline understanding of, of, of what tax collectors were. Um, just to recap a little bit of that, tax collectors were primarily thought about to be two things. Um, they were very intelligent. They were guys who had to know at least three languages. They knew the Aramaic. They knew um, many times they understood the Aramaic, the which is kind of the, the street language. They understood the Hebrew, and they also understood what the language that the Romans spoke, so the Greek language. They understood all three of those things. They had to do that in order to be able to, you know, do their job. On top of that, they had to be, usually they were trained as scribes, so they um, were just the accountant type of people who were very detail-oriented, very able to um, keep track of everything. They were just intelligent people. But on top of that, and this is really what they were most known for, is they were corrupt. Um, and you see, even in this story, there's the category that is the sinners, the quote unquote sinners thing that's all through there that we read. And tax collectors get their own sin category. It's like, well, there's tax collectors or there's sinners and then there's tax collectors. And it, and it does that and it, you see it look like that because that's really how it would have seen. It was there were people who were taxed, there were people who were sinful, and then there was a whole different bracket, no pun intended, that was tax collectors. And that was how they viewed them. And the reason they were the most hated and the reason they were viewed as the most um, corrupt was because they were traitors. They were viewed as people who had basically came in and um, continued on the mission of the Roman oppression. And in order to even become a Roman uh, or in order to become a Roman tax collector to the Jews, what you would have to do is most of the time you couldn't just... It wasn't like the Romans just walked through the city and, and, and put a math test up on the city gates and were like, okay, anybody that can pass this math test, they get to come be uh, a tax collector. They didn't see, you know, post it on Indeed.com and, and if you wanted to be a tax collector, you applied for the job. Um, most of the time what happened is things were so... Um, means were so tight for many families under Roman oppression 
and they understood that there was this one type of uh, job that you could get where you could be guaranteed to be wealthy, and it would be that of a tax collector. But it was something that if you were going to get into and you were going to become a tax collector, it was actually something that you would have to buy into. So you would, many times what would happen is they would actually uh, sell their family land, essentially selling God's providence for them. So there would be a people, or if you were becoming a tax collector, you kind of release, almost abandon your whole entire family, your family's land that was supposed to be your lineage, supposed to stay in your family. You let go of all of that and you trade it in for a, a five by five booth where you collect tax from your fellow people. And so everybody hated them. They hated them for what they did. They hated them because most of them, even if they didn't skim stuff off the top. So if like um, Tom really did owe me as a tax collector $5, I said, you owe me $7. Even if they weren't skimming off the top and putting money in their pockets, they still would have been despised if they took exactly how much the Romans told them to take because they were viewed as traitors. It would be the equivalent if uh, Canada... Uh, attacked the United States, which I don't even know if they have guns in Canada, um, but they maybe they do. I don't, I don't know. Um, Canada attacks the United States, and we all are very angry about that. And, and then some of us become essentially the ones who work for the Canadians to perpetuate their hidden upheaval of the American government. Um, and that's how, that's how we would feel. That's, that's basically what was going on there in this situation. Now, what's unique about this story that I think sometimes we overlook is where his tax collector booth is. All right, so where was it? In our story, yeah, which is by what big piece of water? And, and what happened in the Sea of Galilee? Fishing, all right? And what disciples has Jesus already called? Four fishermen already, okay? Uh, a lot of the stuff that I was doing as far as research goes on this said it was it would have been impossible for this tax collector booth to be there and Simon, which is Peter, Peter, Andrew, brothers, James and John, brothers, for them to not know who Levi Matthew is by name. They would have known what he looks like. They would have had already had face-to-face, me-to-tom transactions with this person that they hated. He was the tax collector that they paid their taxes to. Most of the time, and, and there was a specific, even some of the stuff, you know, there's a, it gets a little bit, I want to like stretch it and make it seem like this is the gospel truth. But there, most of the historians would even say that there was a, Roman fishermen tax, that there were specific taxes that fishermen had to pay on what they had even caught on a, on a weekly basis. And if you've ever seen the, the, uh, the show The Chosen, this, they do a really good job, I think, of this. And, and remember, it's not just like me and my tax collector booth, and it's just here. And like, if I'm being a jerk to you, you can just like say, well, you know, screw you, man. Like, I'm, I'm not going to give you that money. There's a Roman guard right here, too. And so any, any, tongue that you give me as a tax collector, like he's standing here with a sword ready, ready to put you in jail. Like this, you don't give me lip because I've got Rome on my side. And again, that goes all back to why they hated him. And so again, just setting up the scene of this call of this guy at this point in the gospel, 
Jesus has, a, he has not all, but he has some of his disciples. And the disciples we know he has at this point is a collection of two pairs of brothers who are definitely fishermen, who have definitely already paid taxes to the guy Jesus is getting ready to say, you're now a part of the team too. So it's like you see the drama building uh, as it gets ready to go. So that, that's a tax collector, and I would say that's even uh, specifically Matthew. Uh, a few things I love that stand out of the story that I think, again, I know there are points in this story and there are, there are theological truths in the story, but again, what we're trying to do here is lean into specifically the things we see that Jesus teaches us in a story here that show us what it means to be a man of God. And the very first thing that stood out to me is Jesus is not afraid to buck the system. And what, what I mean by that is Jesus refuses to hate somebody because everybody else hates them. He refuses to go along and, and he refuses to be that kid in the back of the class um, who, I'm the new kid in the school and you come in and you see the one that everybody else is picking on and you go, oh, I guess that's the kid we pick on. Why are we picking on him again? I don't know, we just, that's who we pick on. He refuses to hate somebody else just because that's what everybody else does. And what I love here. And again, I think this is what it means to be a part of what Jesus shows us about what it means to be a man. He sees people, he sees another man, not, but not just solely based on what that man does, but on who that man is. He sees intrinsic value past his job description, past what everybody else says about him. And I think that's huge for us because many times as men, we solely define people by what they do. We, we define them by their job. Most of the, that's like usually the, the second question a guy will ask, what's your name? All right, what do you do, man? Where, where do you work? It's like the second thing we ever ask each other. And I love that Jesus goes to a guy <clears throat> who he knows everybody would have looked at and said, that person, if you are a rabbi, and again, Jesus is going around and he's, and he's, and he's guest teaching in different synagogues. He's healing people. He is, and, and what their view of him is, is as a, a rabbi. And so it's really not, we go crazy when we see the faith of James and John and Peter and Andrew when Jesus calls them after the miraculous catch of fish and says, drop their nets. But remember, the, if you can get in the mind or get in the life of a Hebrew young man, a Hebrew late teenager, which is likely the age that many of these guys were, when you have a rabbi invite you to follow them, that was a huge deal. It'd be like if Coach Brian Snigger called me and was like, Trent, come play center field. It's like, oh, well, man, life is, you know, I really like MCC. You know, I just, uh, I, like, I wouldn't, like, if he said, hey, we got a five-year contract, or even if he said it was a three-year contract, which is, I guess, what many of the, the apostles signed up for, a three-year contract, you know, most everybody in here, like, you would leave your job. I don't know what your equivalent of going to play center field for the Braves is, but most of us would be like, yeah, I don't really have to think about that. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'll, I'll sign on for three years, man. I'll figure it out after the three years are over. And that, and I know it sounds wild to think about that, but that's the equivalent of what Jesus does when they call him. And, and so, yes, there is this stretch of faith, but it is also knowing the context in which they're in when a rabbi calls you. And again, there's all sorts of crazy stuff spreading around about Jesus at this point. He had just got through healing like every person who had any ailment in the entire town a few days before. Word's gotten out. And so he shows up here on the scene and he refuses to hate who other people hate. And what I love here is he is the one who determines who is qualified 
to follow him. And that's what I want to lean into today because, man, um, I, I've had this conversation with our staff. I've had this conversation with many men. Uh, most of us, one of the biggest things that we struggle with is because we know us. We know what we've done. We know what we struggled with. Most of us feel very unqualified to do what God is calling us to do. You know, many of you in this room, God's already called you to be a husband. Many of you in this room, God's already called you to be a father. Uh, for many of you who maybe that's not the case right now, that is part of what God's call eventually on your life is. And when we know what we know about us, and we know how much emphasis and importance, when God chose to define himself, like two of the primary things that he chose when he said, hey, I'm going to like... I'm going to try to help people understand who I am and who the Godhead Trinity is. The very first thing he shows up is what? I'm a father. After that, you know, you can go to the next person in the Godhead. You can go to Jesus. What does he say that Jesus is to the church? He's a head. He's the groom. And the church is the bride. And so right off the bat, you, you, you see these two things that, that many of you in this room either are or will be in father and groom. And, and God's the one who defines and sets up what those are. And then we're one of those two. <laughs> and like you can go, man, there's a big gap here. And we feel very unqualified. And for, because of that, there's a lot of fear in our lives. There's a lot of trepidation in our life because we know who we are. Like Matthew in this story, um, one of the things I love is there's, I wish you could get inside the internal dialogue of him of going, seriously? Me? Like, wow. Um, I, I'm totally unqualified to do this. But again, we, we see him follow. Uh, the story goes on. You, you see Matthew follow him. And well, again, I, I would love to be able to be one of the other um, Apostles at this point in the story. And I love how Jesus is like pushing their, uh, them out of their comfort zone. Because track with me. I mean, we talked about this a little bit already. If you're one of these four fishermen guys, at some point you failed or you flunked out of, whether because your family needed the money or because you just weren't smart enough, you flunked out of Hebrew school. Just because either you couldn't make the cut or... Your family needs you to get on the boat and start fishing too. And you flunked out. And then Jesus comes by and goes, hey man, I want you to follow me. And you're like, wow, I must be pretty special. I made this team. I made this rabbi. All those other rabbis, they're not healing people like this. He dropped a dude through my mama's roof and he healed him right in front of us. Like this is my rabbi and I, he chose me. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a team and you felt really special about like being selected to be a part of the team and then you figure out who also got invitations to be a part of the team and you're like, I don't really feel that special anymore. Like, <laughs> like this guy also got invited. And, and that's, that's what I believe is going on in the minds of these guys. I love how Jesus just, just chops the block out from underneath them. And, and, and one of the things I learned from this story is the whole point of that and, and maybe the point of him calling Matthew was to show some of these other guys that this group of disciples has nothing to do with how good you were that earned you a spot on this team. It has everything to do with how good I am and who I bring on this team. And I'm going to bring the worst person. I'm going to bring the person you would least expect to be a part of this team to show you that this team is not about what you guys bring to it. It's about who's the leader of the team. And that's 
Man, that's encouraging for me to know that what Jesus is not looking for me to do is to have all these grand qualifications and to have all these great gifts and to have all of these things put together. And you've heard it before. I think it's one of, I know I've heard this from Craig. It was maybe even in the video that we showed on Easter that God doesn't call or he rarely calls the qualified, but God qualifies those who are called. The top line of a successful, uh, what success looks like in Christianity is not extreme giftedness, is not perfection. It is not even being like, I'm a successful Christian. It really just looks like I'm faithful. I continue to do, I continue to follow. And we know from their story, they didn't get this right. I mean, not even half the time. And I think that's the biggest thing for us to understand is that in those moments when you feel unqualified, this should be freeing. It is not about you. It's not about you. And so don't, don't take the coward way out and use your own self-talk to disqualify you from something that Jesus has qualified you for. And I've done that so many times in my life. I feel like Jesus has been saying, Trent, go do this. I need you. I, I, like, I'm going to be with you, and we're going to work through this, and we're going to do these things, and, and here's where I need you to be, and here's what I need you to do. And because I, of what, not because of what Jesus says is true about me, but because what I believe about me, I don't do those things. And I take the coward's way out because I believe my own fear. And, man, fear will keep you from so much stuff. There's a, this past weekend... Uh, late, late, late Sunday night. Um, I was probably about what time was that? I was probably late. We started. We started our last baseball game of the day this Sunday. Uh, Titus was playing a, a big tournament up in uh, Cobb County, and um, this was game five of the weekend. No, yeah, game five of the weekend. It was a championship game. It was a time in between the semifinal game and the final game. We had just won a very, like a nail-biter game, and we used all of our pitching except for Titus. He's the only arm left. And we're there at the game. We're all in the outfield getting ready to kind of having like the pre-huddle talk before we get ready to go into the championship game. And the guy who's the head coach, he's talking to the boys, and he's, you know, trying to hype them up for the game, talking about what's to come. And he says, and he just kind of says it in mid-sentence. He goes, and Titus is going to pitch for us. And, and my son interrupts coach with a, let's go. We're going to do this. Just this like dynamite of confidence about going in to pitch this championship game. And I'm like, I'm standing with the coaches. We're all, you know, the kids are on a knee. I'm, I'm right here as one of the assistant coaches. And I hear that and I'm like, okay, it's about to go down. Because I see the entire, like, they're getting ready to face a really good team. And I love, like, now, fast forward, he pitched an amazing game, gave up one hit, run one, one run. They won the championship game against the 14th ranked team in the nation. And again, you can tell I'm a proud, proud dad. But despite how he performed, I was talking to, um, I think, Eric and Kendall about this yesterday. So forgive me, Eric, you've already heard this story. As I was reflecting back on that night, what I was more proud of was what he said when he knew that he was being called on to go get on the mound. And his attitude there as a father, I was way more proud of that than how he performed. 
Because here's what I know, and here's what God knows about you. You're going to have more chances to get out on the field. And you may have one good game this week, but I know this as a dad. There's going to be plenty of games where he's going to get called on to go pitch, and he is going to poop the bed. I mean, it is going to be terrible. He's going to give up runs. It's not going to be pretty. And, you know, we're going to have a hard car ride back home. You know, that ride back home was awesome because he, he dominated the team. But I think... You know, put yourself, you know, the way I felt as a father, I believe this is how God feels about us. When, when, when God says, hey, I'm calling you to this big job, I'm calling you to this big role, I think what God loves and is most proud of us, and I mean, I know God cares about how we perform and what we do, but I think what he's really looking for is our fearlessness to go, yes, sir, let's go. Yes, I'm a father. Yes, I'm in, yes, I'm single right now. Yes, I'm a dad right now. Yes, you've, you've given me a promotion at work, and, and now I have to rise up my level of leadership. Yes, uh, we had three kids, and now there's a fourth one. Well, I guess I'll just expand how I'm a parent at this point. Yeah, like, let, I'm ready for this. And again, I, again, it's a different than a base, but this is where the metaphor breaks down. Our confidence is not in our abilities. Our confidence is not in the, the fact that we... Um, know how good or how bad what we're getting ready to face is. And this is where I even take it back a little bit to my own son in this. I, I believe, and again, I, I coach a lot of baseball and I've watched a lot of kids. There's a lot of kids who, when the, if a coach goes, and, and, and you know this from the times where you've done this stuff, if a coach goes, hey, this is the big championship game, you're pitching, it's an oh crap moment. And you see them tense up and they get fearful. And I think a big part of why my son was there is he has a like I, I don't I don't know really why he is the way he is honestly for those of you who are praying uh, for those of you who are praying for his uh, confidence I pray that you would stop uh, there, there's enough of that there pray for his humility at this point in his life um, but I think I think so much of that is we've 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 gone to battle and I've done everything I can to pound into his head um, that who you are is not defined by what you do. And he knows win or lose, my father loves me. My, I like, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and dad's not going to say a word about this. It's going to be, it's gonna, regardless, whatever happens, I know who I am. I know who loves me. And if I fail, I fail. Because he, he's had plenty of times where he's done the exact opposite of what he did last Sunday night, where he's trashed the game and, and you know, it's, a, it's, it's not good. And I think for many of us, Knowing that Jesus is the one who calls us and knowing that what he's calling us to doesn't come with the expectation that you're going to get it perfectly right all the time should be freeing and should give us a little bit of conf uh, even more confidence. Let's, let's get out of the father-son thing and go to the, the marriage side of things. When, when you're married... You're going to try to be perfect, but you get that right for about 15 minutes, right? Married guys in the room? Then maybe you get like 15 minutes of perfection a day, like where you're not messing something up. You know, those of you, you just know what I'm talking about. But there's a difference between being faithful and being perfect. And what I need you guys to understand in a relationship to Jesus as the head of, of us as the church and our relationship with the Father, he's not calling us to be 
perfect because uh, he knows that's, that's going to be an impossible task. And that's where we can't beat ourselves up when we're not. But what he's calling us to be is faithful. And I can make mistakes in my marriage. And I, I probably have today that I don't know about. I'm probably going to get a text message for let me know. Say, hey, you forgot this or you didn't do this or did you? I may get some of that today. I can make mistakes, but just because I make mistakes, or even if I, even if I do something that lets Jessica down, I have not been unfaithful to Jessica. And so what Satan would love to do in your life is when you make mistakes in your walk with Christ to go, you cheated on him. You're unfaithful. You, you turned your back on him. You abandoned him. Well, no. No, you, you made a mistake. And get back up. Go against the wind. Walk with him. And walk into what he's calling you to. And I think that's what I love about this story. Man, Matthew shows us that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who calls us into this. And again, to go back to the thing at the very end of Jesus' quote, he gives this amazing one-liner to these guys and he reminds us that my whole purpose was not to come fix the guys. My, my whole purpose was not to come pick and choose all the men who had it already figured out. My whole purpose was to come here and to find sinners. That's what I love about, I mean, you can give Matthew some, some, some crap for who he was and what he was doing, but he understands who he is. And he says, you know what? <laughs> you know, in our minds, it would be like, well, what's worse than one tax collector? A whole dinner with him. But that's exactly what Matthew does. He's like, hey, uh, well, Jesus, if you're okay with me, you've got to be okay with mine. And he invites everybody in. And he invites his whole tribe of tax collectors and people that nobody would expect. And because of Matthew, because of Jesus' call, this whole giant group of people has an encounter with Jesus. Because Matthew, was, he understood, this is where I'm at, but from this moment forward, I'm a follower of Christ. And I pray that you have encounters like that.